The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church and Pastor Mark Ermler. Welcome to part two of our look at the last feast in Leviticus chapter number 23. Thank you, Melody. If you need an outline, you have them in the bulletin, all right? If you need a bulletin, wave at us, and uh, one of the ushers will get one to you. Um, we really didn't get started on our outline this morning, did we? So uh, all that you have there in your bulletin, it'll work, all right? So let's uh, go ahead, and I want us to begin by uh, looking at a few passages of Scripture as we think about uh, Jesus and his call for us to draw nigh to him. You know, when you think of these seven feasts, and one of the reasons that God really put this series on my heart at the beginning of the year is because our theme is draw me nearer. And I want you just to think about that for a moment, that God desires to be with his people. God craves being with his people. Three times of the year, the Bible said in relation to the feast, he desired for them to come to Jerusalem. And uh, we recognize that throughout these seven feasts, it's a call really to come to Jesus. It's we come to Jesus as our Passover. We come to him as our only remedy for salvation because it's through his precious blood that is shed that we can be saved. And so we thank God for that. We come to that perfect uh, unleavened, bread, the bread of life without sin, and uh, we journey with him. Not only does he call us to draw nigh to him, but he desires for us to walk with him. The walk of the children of Israel after 430 years in Egypt was one where God went with him, with them. What a picture. Draw nigh to God. God's desiring for us to walk with him on a daily basis. And we see one feast after another where it causes us to see in a great way that God wants to be in our presence. And I'm not sure there's any uh, feast that does that as well as the Feast of Tabernacles because that is the feast where we have a seven-day celebration at the end of the harvest for God's people to gather and rejoice in the goodness of God. Uh, this morning we left off looking at the importance of Jesus Christ and the aspect of the giver of life because he gives himself. He is life. The giver of peace. Why? Because he is peace. When we have Jesus, we have his life. When we have Jesus, we have his peace. When we have Jesus, we have love. For God is love. And when we think of that opportunity here to draw nigh to the Lord, we see from Revelation, I'd like you to go there, uh, just to get a little backdrop to this last prophetic picture, which is the Feast of the Tabernacles. Revelation chapter number 21, we saw the verse this morning, verse number 3, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. That's amazing. 
The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. What every believer has the opportunity to look forward to is that we will have the privilege of tabernacling with God for all eternity. Now, for you and I who know Jesus Christ as our Savior in this church age, we really focus on the fall feasts because the fall feasts are all before us. The the spring feasts are behind us, but the fall feasts are before us. We have the three, the trumpets, and that's the gathering. The trumpets is all about the church being gathered into the presence of Jesus in the clouds. Jerusalem is now uh, the magnet to draw Israel to the Holy Land. And we're going to see that taking place in a greater way during those seven-year tribulation period. I just saw again on the, uh, the Internet about the UN coming up with a bunch more resolutions against Israel. I think that's all they have uh, to do with their time is, is think about what dastardly thing Israel's done and, and have a UN declaration against Israel for doing it. Listen, the stage is being set for every nation to turn their back on Israel, just as God prophesied. By the way, everything that happened as you look at the spring feast to the smallest detail are absolutely going to be fulfilled in the fall feast. And we have to recognize that just as accurate as God was uh, in, in, in the springtime, allowing his son to come to be the Passover lamb, to die, to rise again, uh, to uh, see the birth of the church there through Pentecost, all of that which is before us will take place. And the question is, are we ready? Are we ready? Now let's step into the future just a little bit here in the book of Revelation because as you think of the fall feast, we start with a trumpet and the trumpet for the believer is uh, we're in the air with the Lord and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So we're in his presence, but there's a terrible seven-year tribulation that takes place on earth. Listen, if you're not in Christ today, those seven years will be a reality for you. You're going to look around and everybody that you knew that was a Christian, they'll be gone. Everybody here that you knew that was a follower of Jesus Christ, they are vanished. And the world's going to plummet into chaos. There's going to be leaders of the the world that may be believers that are gone. There's going to be all types of Christians in different areas of uh, governments and military. They're gone. There's a crisis coming to this world like this world has never seen because they have no explanation for where did these people go? And it's at that time that the Antichrist is going to rise up and wrest control of the world as the savior of the world. And we see during that seven-year tribulation, there's going to be a greater hatred for God, a greater hatred for Israel. And we're going to see that as the word of God unfolds, Satan, uh, because he knows his time is short, uh, is going to be on the loose. Oh, uh, your your heart breaks for those that are going to be left behind uh, during that tribulation period. Because as you read through the Word of God, specifically Revelation, 
Boy, it's a horror picture of all the mayhem and destruction, the anarchy. Oh, if there's no other reason to get saved, it's to realize that outside of Jesus Christ, if Jesus were to come this week, you'd go through it. You'd have to live it. Oh, fly to Jesus Christ. Receive him. He is our only hope. So most of the book of Revelation from chapter 4 right on through chapter number 19 all deal basically with that seven-year tribulation. You want to see what it's about, get in the book of Revelation. Start reading from chapter 4 onward, and you're going to get a bird's-eye view of all that is coming here in this world. Now, when we have the trumpets, again, the church is gone, but there's a trumpet call for Israel, and Israel is going to start to be uh, gathered in a greater way toward Israel, uh, uh, toward the land of Israel during those seven years. That's Jacob's trouble. That's the tribulation period. But there's also a gathering at the end of those seven years of all nations. And all those nations, it's going to crescendo for the first three and a half years. It seems like it's not going to be too bad. And the Antichrist is going to make peace. And there's going to be a, a, a kind of peace. And there is going to be a desecration of a temple that's yet to be built in Jerusalem. In the midst of the tribulation period. And when that is accomplished, then the Antichrist is going to show his true colors. And uh, there you're going to see just this uh, hatred, this venom toward God. And now we see after the full seven years, I want us to go to chapter number uh, 19. And this is wonderful because, whoa, <laughs> you guys figuring it out? I think so. Let's go right in the Bible here to chapter number 19. And this is wonderful because chapter number 19, the Bible tells us that there's a scene in heaven which is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And by the way, this is where the church is. We, we've gone through the Bema seat, all right, the judgment seat of Christ where rewards are handed out. And all of this turmoil is going on. Down here below, we're above it. I use the illustration of Noah, where the destruction was coming down below. Noah was safe above. Why? Because he walked through the door of salvation, who is Jesus Christ. And so the church is above all that's going on here. Uh, we are not appointed under wrath, the Bible says to the church at Thessalonica. Paul was trying to comfort them with the fact that, listen, uh, we're not under wrath. That great day of the Lord, which is the tribulation, it, it is not for you. So as we look at what is taking place, there's that marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at the worship to God in verse 4. Again, you see that, that scene from uh, Revelation 4 where the 20 and 4 elders... And the four beasts fell down and they worshiped God and sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And the voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of great multitude and the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. By the way, God was reigning and he always has reigned in heaven. 
But that prayer that you and I pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. That day's coming. That's something. You better believe God's will is being done in heaven. And there's a day where this old world is going to be a, a, a place where Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign. He's omnipotent. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife had made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. That's key for this chapter. Because it depicts the righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ. And this outward attire that we have reflects that. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now, my righteousness is the righteousness that was imputed on my account by Jesus Christ when I received him as my Savior. It's not my self-righteousness. No one gets to heaven by being good. No one gets to heaven here because they've been a good mom or a good dad or a good neighbor or a good employee. Nobody. Because God says all our goodness, our righteousness, it's his filthy rags. So what do I need? I need his righteousness. And so we are arrayed here at this marriage, a picture of the church with this fine linen, white and this is the righteousness of the saints. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto them, These are the true sayings of God. So from that scene, we see now the culmination of those seven years down here of tribulation. The judgment seat, the bema, has already taken place. The rewards have been passed out. We've gone from that to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the end of the seven-year tribulation, and now heaven prepares itself for war. Heaven prepares itself to come at the end of that seven years here to this earth to absolutely set up this kingdom that so many have prayed for to see for so long. Notice as we begin reading verse 13 of chapter 19. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That's back to the reference of the, the bride. The, the, the ones that were there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now we go from that supper uh, to the stable, uh, to the horses, to that warfare. And the Bible tells us here that, verse, verse 15, and out of his mouth, this is in reference to that faithful and true one, Jesus Christ leading the saints, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations. Now think of that. He's going to speak and smite the nations. You say, I don't want to be on no sword, and I don't want to have to go and fight it. Listen, Jesus, all he's got to do is speak. And the nations crumble. He spoke everything into existence. He can speak and destroy. Here the Bible says he'll smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now, this is a picture of, after that battle, the millennium, which is this Feast of the Tabernacle. It represents the Feast of the Tabernacle. 
And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowl that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Remember I told you, that seven-year period begins with the, 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 the Feast of the Trumpets, which is the call for the church, but also the call for Israel, but also the call for the nations to assemble. See, this is all God's plan. I get frustrated with the UN, but it's God's plan. <laughs> I shake my head at their anti-Israel stance, but it's all God's plan. It's all coming together. And there'll be fewer and fewer and fewer nations that are going to stand with Israel until... All of a sudden, it's going to be Israel against the world. So here, as Jesus comes back, uh, after uh, the supper, marriage supper of the Lamb, there's another supper. And the birds of the air are called to that supper as this great battle takes place. And the Bible in verse 18 says that ye may eat the flesh, referring to these birds, of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and to them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them, and that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive in a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowl were filled with their flesh. So it's over. The world thought they could fight against God and against God's little nation. Take a map sometime and look at that tiny little Israel compared to the world. And the whole world, even now, I mentioned last week, 53 Arab nations desiring to form an Islamic army led by Turkey, recognizing that against Israel, Israel cannot stand. If all three of those Islamic, uh, 53 of those Islamic nations around the Middle East would join as one great army, against Israel. They could utterly destroy Israel. Folks, the time is short. We're seeing this before our very eyes. God's desire is for His church to be ready to hear the trumpet sound. Why? Because it's time to leave. Harvest season is over. That three-month period between the spring feast and the fall feast, the, 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 the fall feast, it's over. Our opportunity is gone. Now we're in heaven, and yet we see God's plan continues to unfold here. God's calendar continues to unfold. And now as we go from that last day of that seven-year tribulation period, we are ushering in now what we really look at as this Feast of the Tabernacles, which is this millennial reign of Christ. Millennium, millennial basically comes from the Latin word milli, meaning a thousand, annum, year. You say, well, that's not in the Bible anywhere. 
Well, I know, but there's some other phrases just like it, and we're going to find those in chapter 20. By the way, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but we believe it. All right? Uh, the millennial kingdom is just another way to say the thousand-year reign of Christ. Does the Bible talk about that? I think so. Look at verse 20. Chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him, how long? A thousand years. Okay. Now, uh, folks, when we think of what transpires in that seven-year great tribulation, Satan is on the loose and not only are the armies of the nations of the world going to be destroyed that are fighting against God, so will the ringleader. Satan will be captured, the strong angel. And he is going to be tossed there into that bottomless pit. And the Bible says, he describes him, there's, there's no way we can mistake dragon, old serpent, the devil, Satan. So verse 2 says, it's a thousand years. Look at verse 3. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. Think about a world without the deception of Satan. Boy, everywhere you look in the media, Hollywood, ah, you, you go to the classroom, you go to the church, sadly. What do you find? Deception? Who's at work? deceiver. You see it everywhere. You see it in the philosophy of governments. You see it in spending bills, <laughs> like our government this last week. We're still going to fund $500 million to Planned Parenthood. Unbelievable. We see it everywhere. Deception. Why? Because Satan's. He's here. He's working. By the way, Jesus said, the whole world lies in the hand of the wicked one. I know we like that little song. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's kind of catchy. But the truth is, the whole world lies in the hand of the wicked one. It does. Satan is at work everywhere in this world. And we recognize, according to the scripture here, that this old devil, this certain, is going to be bound, serpent is going to be bound for a thousand years. So, he's deceiving, verse 3. Look at verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither hath received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Listen, there have been a lot of martyrs for the faith, but in the tribulation period, you'll see a lot of those followers of Jesus that will be martyred for the faith. And the execution that's going to be used by the enemy of these believers is literally decapitation. Now, who would have thought in our modern era that that would become popular again? Who would have thought that something as barbaric as the severing of heads to intimidate would become norm? And, and we see ISIS and we see their tactics. And we go, whoa, look at this. Is the world being prepared? Are these young people being prepared 
that this becomes a very common thing for those that are followers of Jesus Christ. Are, are they desynthesized here? Uh, they're, they're, you see pictures of little children using the heads of Christians as soccer balls. Why? This is, this is their life. This is what they see. This is what they're taught. And these Christians will be laying down their lives for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the emphasis in verse number 4 at the end. And they lived and reigned with Christ. How long? A thousand years. There it is, that millennial kingdom. How about verse 5? But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Yeah, there is a resurrection in that first resurrection. Jesus being the first fruits of that resurrection. That second resurrection is the resurrection of the damned. It's at that great white throne judgment. You don't want to be a part of that resurrection. So after that thousand year reign of Christ takes place, there will be people that will be born during that time that will have an opportunity to receive Christ, reject Christ. And at the very end of the millennium, Satan is loosed for a short time. And there are some again that foolishly follow him in rebellion against God. And, and we, we recognize here that uh, these will be a part of that resurrection of the dead. And by the way, that's described in just a couple verses in this chapter. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such a second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years is expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle and the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Again, this is after this thousand-year millennial reign. Look at verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire. Again, he's going to be destroyed. This time he'll be cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and forever. Listen, that's just the first wave of those being cast into this lake of fire. You say, who's next? All the unbelievers. In the next couple of verses, the great white throne, uh, the uh, great white throne judgment is described, and the Bible talks about these dead. Verse eleven, and I saw a great white throne, him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire with Satan. So that's where they're now following. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Are you written in the Lamb's book of life? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Because if not, this is the eternal home. 
of those outside of Christ. In chapter 21, it, it tells us who's going. Verse 8, the fearful, the unbelieving. You say, what do I have to do to have the same eternal judgment that Satan himself has? Just don't believe. The unbelieving. Oh, yes, the abominable are mentioned, murderers are mentioned, whoremongers are mentioned, sorcerers are mentioned, idolaters are mentioned, but so are all liars. They shall have their part in the lake, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Folks, all of this is God's calendar being unfolded. God makes it very plain. Again, spring feasts to the, to the exact detail fulfilled. How about the fall? Yeah, the trumpets, that's first. And then the day of atonement for Israel. The mourning. Oh, the sorrow. Why? Because they see him who they pierced. They recognize that they rejected the true Messiah. There's a, a remorse in the heart of the Jewish people, and they turn to Jesus Christ. Instead of using him as a swear word, he is now their king, their Messiah, their God, their Lord. All right, let's go to number one here. I want us to see a time to remember when it comes to this Feast of the Tabernacles. Again, it's a historic event. Going back to Leviticus, it was practiced by the children of Israel. It will be practiced according to Revelation uh, that uh, the Feast of Tabernacles will be something. Zechariah also tells us about it, that God's people are year by year the millennial uh, reign of Christ is going to come for this uh, feast time, all right? But first of all, when you think of the Feast of the Tabernacles, uh, we have to see that it's a time to remember. Several quick verses here on, uh, to remember. Look at Deuteronomy 5.15 on the screen. Here, concerning this feast, the Bible says, Remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out, fenced through a mighty hand, and by a stretched out arm. Deuteronomy 15, 15, And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, that the Lord God redeemed thee. Deuteronomy 16, 12, And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and shall observe to do these statutes. Deuteronomy 24, verse number 18, But thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. All right. In regard to the Feast of the Tabernacle, the reality that God is going to dwell with us, it was a time for the children of Israel to look back, first of all, and remember the good hand of God in their lives. Go with me to Deuteronomy 1, and we're going to look, first of all, letter A. The blank there is the presence of God. Deuteronomy 1. Deuteronomy chapter number 1. Of course, this is the second giving of the law, and this is Moses for that young generation about to go in the promised land, giving this book of Deuteronomy. Uh, by the way, they've already been in the practice of celebrating these feasts. All right? And now in chapter 1, I want you to see verse number 31. 
And in the wilderness where thou hast seen how that the Lord thy God bare thee as a man doth bear his son in all the way that he went until he came into this place. Boy, you talk about intimacy. You talk about drawing nigh to God. He'll draw nigh to you. Here the children of Israel are that close that it's as if God is just carrying them. All right, verse number 31. Look at verse 33. Who went in the way before you to search you out a place to pitch your tents in, in fire by night, and to show you by the way what way ye should go in in a cloud by day. So as we look at this first thought of the tabernacle, a time to remember we see we're to remember the presence of God. The presence of God. First of all, when the way is hard. When the way is hard. Here in these verses, verse 31, we just read it. God had to bear them up. You can imagine taking a, a hike with your grandchild or your child, and, and it was maybe a little longer than you thought it would be. And uh, their little legs are getting tired. And so what's the next step? All right, it's on the shoulders, all right? Uh, they just can't go any farther, and you've got to get back to the vehicle. And so up they go on the shoulders. And there in those difficult times, Israel was to look back and recognize that, you know, he was with us the whole time. He was always with us. And what a blessing that that is, the presence of God. When the way is hard and when the way is dark. Verse 33, who went up in the way before you to search you out a place to pitch your tents in, in fire by night. See, God's presence was there. And that celebration of the uh, tabernacle here allowed us to see that presence of God. Letter B, the word provision. You know, one of the things that you get to do there as you're celebrating that feast of the tabernacle is you look back at all the blessing of God and how he's worked in your life. You see his presence along the way, but you also see his provision along the way. And I want us to go to Deuteronomy 7 and chapter 8, and here we see in reference to uh, really this... Uh, tabernacle experience, this experience here of, of dwelling with God, that's exactly what took place during these years of wandering in the wilderness. God was there. God's provision was there. There was physical provision for them. Look at chapter 7, verse 15. And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. Now, folks, we have to realize that that was for a specific people at a specific time. It was for the Jewish people as they were going on their journey from Egypt to the promised land. But God made physical provision for them. And I'll have to say it was supernatural. Just think about that. Uh, I mean, one of the big concerns you'd have to be in that wandering for year after year after year is just the health. And uh, yet God said, I'm not going to allow the sicknesses of Egypt to come upon you at that time. Notice the provision of manna, chapter 8, verse 3. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna. Remember the heavenly food. 
So the provision of God, the physical provision of health, of manna. How about the clothes? Look at chapter 8, verse 4. Thy raiment wax not old upon thee. Now I know, gals, that's not too exciting. You get to wear the same wardrobe for 40 years. Uh, Nobody gets excited about that. Uh, But uh, the Bible just says, hey, it just didn't wear out. It just didn't wear out. God supernaturally worked in providing food coming out of heaven, providing water out of the rock, providing clothes that don't ever wear out, providing shoes that the Bible says they didn't wear out. This is the supernatural provision of God. And oh, when we look back at what God did when he tabernacled with Israel, we can look forward to what God's going to do with his people in his millennial kingdom. Folks, it's going to be a miraculous place, a miraculous world. Things are going to be different than what we know today. We're going to get to some of those passages. That world that's waiting for us is not a sin-cursed world. The thorns that came because of the fall, they're not in that world. God's there. He's going to rule and reign, and we're going to see this marvelous provision. Not only just the physical, but look at verse number 3. Do you see the spiritual as well? He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knowest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Oh, the provision of the word of God and how God led them. Now you say, what's the significance here of this water and this light as the provision? Well, it's tied to the Feast of Tabernacles in the New Testament. Two things that happened during Jesus' time in regard to that seven-day feast is one was the drawing of the water as a symbol of God's provision of water in the wilderness. And the priest would go there to the pool of Siloam and he would bring uh, there in that golden vessel water and they would pour that uh, there at the temple before the Lord. Uh, It's a wonderful, wonderful picture. Also, during that feast, we see that there are four large candles that would be lit during uh, the Feast of the Tabernacle. And as these candles were lit, they were to remind them that in the wilderness, God provided the light, the pillar of fire. And so these became a part of that celebration of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, why is that significant? I want you to go to John chapter 7. I'd love for you to see it in your Bibles. Of course, it's going to be on the screen too. But we have... Reference in the scripture here concerning Jesus Christ attending the Feast of the Tabernacle. And I want you to see what Jesus did during that feast. John chapter 7, notice verse number 2. Now the Jews' Feast of the Tabernacle was at hand. So the context of what we're about to read is Jesus, as all Jewish men three times a year were commanded to come up to Jerusalem for the feast time. You had the three spring feasts all together. 
Passover unleavened bread, and you had the uh, uh, first fruits all there together. Fifty days later, you had Pentecost. They'd have to return after 50 days and celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And then you'd have the three months of summer harvest, and they were called to come back in the fall. Well, Jesus came back, as all Jewish men were required to come back for the fall feast. And there at the fall feast, do you see it? Jesus, in the last day, that great day of the feast, referring to the Feast of Tabernacles, verse number 2. Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. What was he saying? He's saying, I'm the fulfillment. You're celebrating the Feast of Tab Tabernacles, God dwelling. I'm here. And he calls man and he cries, If any man thirst, let him come unto me. Listen, nothing can satisfy like Jesus can. You'll always have heartbreak. You'll always have disappointment. We live lives. Some go through much tremendous heartache. Um, it just is something here that is a part of life. Saved people go through heartache. Unsaved people go through heartache. But listen, the call is Jesus satisfied. Jesus is the one that I need. And he's crying out as they're pouring out water in the Feast of the Tabernacles as a symbol of that provision of God in the wilderness. Jesus said, I'm your provision. I'm all you need. Oh, if the world could get a hold of that. Jesus is all you need. So that's in John chapter number 7. Go to John chapter 8. We're still during this time. We're coming here to the very end of these seven-day feast, And the Bible tells us now, what does Jesus do? Chapter number 8, verse number 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. See, he's the water. He's the light. Just like he's the life. He's the peace. It's Christ. And so as they're celebrating during this Feast of the Tabernacles, all the provision of God in the past, Jesus stands up and says, I'm all you need. Oh, if the world could know that. Satan says, religion's what you need. And Jesus says, no, you need me. Satan loves using religion as a tool. He deceives through religion. Matter of fact, the false prophet, what does that give you a hint of? The beast and the false prophet, it's a man of religion. Listen, there's going to be religion in the tribulation. There's going to be a lot of worship. In the tribulation, it's not religion and it's not worship of other things. It's Christ and Christ alone. And boy, if we could see that. God's not accepting us because we're religious. God's accepting us because we are in his son, Jesus. And, and oh, the picture here of the provision and the presence of God is revealed through 
these verses. Go to the book of Revelation. Again, we were there in chapter 21. Revelation chapter number 21. This thought of the water and this thought of the light are for eternity as well. We're talking about the millennial kingdom as that time where we're tabernacling with God. That is a picture of that seven-day feast. But the Bible tells us about an eighth day, which is interesting. Here are these seven days, this feast of the tabernacles. It is the, the millennial kingdom, but you know there's something beyond the millennial kingdom. There's an eighth day. And the eighth day is Revelation chapter 22. And the eighth day is the new heaven and the new earth. And just as Jesus Christ cries out that, listen, I am the water and I am the light. Look at it in Revelation 21.6 on the screen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Chapter 22, verse 1, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, crystal as uh, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Again, the millennial reign, chapter 22, 21, the eternal everlasting reign of Christ with a new heaven and new earth, chapter 22. Still the same Jesus. He's still the only one that can satisfy. He's the only one that can quench the thirst. How about Revelation 21, verse 3? Again, the millennial reign. 21, verse number 3. Look at what the Bible says. uh, 23, up on the screen. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. So in the millennial reign, he's the light. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now what about after that thousand-year reign? All right, that's the eighth day, and now we're looking at, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light for the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and forever. Listen, there'll be no end. What a blessing. All right? So, presence of God, the provision of God, the protection of God. Just write down the word protection, because I'm going to fast forward it. You know, in the millennial reign of Christ, we see here God's protection over nature, over the nations. I don't have the time to go to Deuteronomy, but we recognize here that we're to remember how God watched over us. And then the purpose of God for Israel. Why did God choose them? The purpose of God, letter D, to prove his love. You can read it, Deuteronomy 7, 7, write it in the notes. Not because they were great and wonderful and awesome. (laughs) Because God was great and wonderful and awesome. And God set his love upon that nation. He proved his love and he provided a land. All right, so it's a time to remember. And that's what they did over those seven days. They were remembering what God's done in the past. But it also was a time to rejoice. All right, a time to rejoice. Go with me to Isaiah, first of all, chapter 12. Again, we're looking at this millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are so many passages 
in the scripture that point to this millennial reign and what's going on. And there are key words and verses around. If you open your Bible, you'll see it more than on the screen because in chapter number 11, the Bible here talks about a rod, verse 1, out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And we see here a description in verse 6, And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Folks, that's the millennial kingdom. That's the millennial kingdom. I'm in chapter 11, verse 6. Verse 7, The cow and the bear shall feed their young ones, shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Folks, that's back to... Genesis, that's back to the garden. Folks, you don't need a zoo to keep the wild animals. Isn't that amazing? Just think of what this millennial reign is going to look like. Verse number 9, And they shall hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 11, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand against the second time to recover the remnant, his people which shall uh, be left. Verse 12, and he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcast of Israel, gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Wow. Isaiah chapter number 11. Wonderful passage here, or chapter uh, 11 and chapter number 12. Look at verse 3. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Again, during that millennial reign of Christ. Not only a time to remember, but a, a time to rejoice. Go back one screen. I think you're confusing folks a little bit here with references we haven't quite gotten to. How about chapter 25? I'm trying to get you... Open your Bible, chapter 25, look at verse 8 and 9. Another description of what's going to happen. Verse 8, he shall swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all their faces, and the rebuke of the people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it, and it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God, and we have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now up on the screen, Isaiah 51, 11. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. That's that millennial reign. That's what the Feast of Tabernacle prophesy as that event in God's calendar that's yet to come. Yes, it's a time to remember, but it's also a time to rejoice. Isaiah 66 is, again, one of those classic passages here on the millennial reign of Christ. And throughout it, you see joy. Verse 18, but uh, be ye glad and rejoice. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and the joy in my people. That's what this festival was all about. It was joy. All right? Now, letter A, write down this. What this joy follows. The first feast is trumpets. What's the second fall feast? 
Starts with an A. Atonement. The trumpets. The church is gone. But the trumpet for the nation of Israel is to gather. And we realize that that gathering here, they are going to be presented with the claims of Jesus Christ. And there will be, as that day of atonement, a sorrow. Why? Because they recognize sin. Sorrow. Sorrow in their heart that they have gazed upon him who they pierced. Oh, the reality that will sink in that Israel has rejected. So what uh, this joy follows, it's, it follows a time of mourning over sin. It's that second feast. It's the atonement that the nation of Israel, the forgiveness of sins. Why? All of these years there's been no animal sacrifice, but Jesus, the Lamb of God, he comes. He comes. A time to remember, number two, a time to rejoice. Time to rejoice, number three, and we'll close, a time to reign. Go to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter number 5. A time to reign. The Word of God allows us to see that Part of this millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ is once again rightfully sitting on the throne. Now, the first time Jesus came, 2,000 years ago, he came as the Lamb. Folks, when Jesus comes back to this earth at the second coming, don't confuse that with the rapture. The rapture, he meets us in the air. The second coming is when he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. He came the first time as the lamb. He's coming the second time as the lion. And here in Revelation chapter number 5, we see that dynamic. Who's worthy? Verse 2, to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. No man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither look upon it. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Do you get the picture? In the midst of the church... He's the lamb. When he comes to this world, he's coming as the lion. Wouldn't you rather meet him as the lamb than meet him as the lion? Oh, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And they said, who's worthy to open these books? And, and by the way, you're about to unleash the seven years of tribulation. And uh, we see that from chapter 6, verse 1, and I saw that the Lamb opened one of the seals. And so the seals, who's worthy to open that? Well, the Lamb is, who's also the lion. In the midst of the church, he's the Lamb. But he's the lion as he's coming in justice and judgment to this old world. And here, our God allows us to see that in this millennial reign, he's going to be ruling with a rod of iron. All right, the last couple blanks, let me just 
give you, give you the, the, the answers, all right? Letter A is the name of it. We've already talked to you about it being the millennial reign of Christ. The need of it or the necessity of it. Why, why is the Feast of Tabernacles so important? Or why is this millennial reign so important? I'll just give you four quick reasons. Number one, to answer the prayer of the people of God that God's people have prayed for 2,000 years. Thy kingdom come. Oh, won't that be a day when that prayer is answered? Thy kingdom come. All that we have read in the word of God about that reign, it will happen. And the reason it has to happen is because God gave us that as a prayer to pray. Number two, to redeem the creation of God. Isaiah 55, 12 and 13 you're going to see here that the redemption of the earth is going to take place during that time. There's going to be a change in everything. We're going to, we're going to see here in the plant kingdom a change. The thorns are going to give way to the myrtle tree. And the willow is what the Old Testament prophet said. Wouldn't that be fun? Having a rose without a thorn? Things are going to change. In this millennial kingdom. We've already read about the change here among the animals. And how they're going to react to men. And uh, how they're going to react to each other. The child is going to lead here. Uh, some of these what today is a ferocious animal. So there's the name. Alright. There's the necessity or the need of it. To answer the prayer of the people of God. To redeem the creation of God. To fulfill the word of God. Folks. There are people that do not believe in a literal thousand-year reign. And the reality is Jesus, God, made a promise to Abraham and to David. We call it the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And both those covenants are very clear about God's promise to his people. When God uses words like everlasting, that means forever. There has to be this millennial reign. Why? Because God cannot lie. It is to fulfill the word of God. If you want a, a reference to go through in Genesis, uh, go to chapter 12, verse 1, 2, and 3, chapter 13, verse 14 and 15, chapter 17, verse 8, and I wish I had a time to read them, but God made the promise to Abraham, and it will be fulfilled. God also made the promise to David, Concerning his seed will rule and reign forever. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 through 17 will give you that first promise. And 2 Chronicles chapter 13, I'm going to read one verse, verse 5. Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over to Israel to David forever? even to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt. God made a promise he cannot break. And the offspring of David, Jesus Christ, will sit on that throne. There has to be a millennium because God made the promise. An answer to the people of God, to redeem the creation of God, to fulfill the word of God, and to honor the Son of God. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 1.11. He talked about first the suffering of Christ and the glory that shall follow. 
When Jesus came the first time, it was about the suffering of Christ. When Jesus comes the second time, it's all about uh, the glory that will follow. He will be glorified as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will have his rightful due. Oh, all of heaven must have been amazed when he laid aside his prerogative as God to wrap himself up in human flesh and be born of a virgin. Laid aside his prerogative of power and submitted himself and humbled himself to be raised as a child and and grow into adolescence and and then as a man in in a humble place. Like Nazareth, the the son of a carpenter, to be scorned. Because he was born of a virgin, all the the, the rumors floated around him his whole life. He's the son, uh, he's he's a bastard child. That's what Jesus grew up. Why? Because they said Joseph wasn't the father, must have been some Roman. Mary was unfaithful. Jesus is a product here of the offspring of this uh, immorality. And they used that against Jesus Christ. They used his upbringing, Nazareth. Can no good thing uh, come out of, no good thing comes out of Nazareth. Well, he wasn't born in Nazareth, was he? He was born in the kingly city of Bethlehem. And yet we see that the truth is, the reality is it was to honor the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look forward in our life right now, looking at these seven feasts, looking at the the spring feasts and the, the, the reality of their fulfillment, looking forward to what God has before us in these fall feasts. Oh, I'm praying that God will just do something in our hearts to where we desire, maybe in a way like never before, to walk close to our God, to allow this theme, draw me near. You know, this may be the very last theme that we'll celebrate as a church together on this planet. The drawing near could be God bringing us out of this place. I don't know the time. God just says you need to be aware of what's going on and you need to see how God is putting all the parts in place and all the pieces are coming together. And we as the church have to be awake to the reality of the times and realize that, all right, when will it be? When are we going to hear the first of the fall feast? And when that first trumpet blares, oh, in the In the month, that first fall month, that first month of the year, Tishri, all of this happens. The 1st, the 10th, the 15th through the 21st. It all happens rapidly. And this whole world is going to go from rapture to seven-year tribulation to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And God's calling us as his people to be ready. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church. If this message was a help to you, please feel free to share it on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.